Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Elizabeth Maxwell, and I serve on the care team and the welcome team. And I also do a few hours during the week doing some uh, routine admin work that frees up Agnes and Tasha to do more important stuff. Uh, the Bible reading today is going to be from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 38. If you haven't got a Bible or you've left yours at home, feel free to go up the back and help yourself. And if you haven't got one at all, feel free to keep it. It's a gift from us. So Luke 22, verses 1 to 38. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owners of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat my Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question amongst themselves which it might be. A dispute also arose among them to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, one who is at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stood by, my, by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Thanks, and good morning again, everyone. Uh, again, if you're new, my name is RJ. I'm, one of the, I'm the associate pastor here in Tungabi Baptist. Uh, we are continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and this series should really take us to uh, Good Friday and Easter, uh, which means that for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at events uh, leading up to the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And I think this is good because as we approach uh, that season, it allows us to reflect uh, a lot more better uh, leading to that. But as we begin, let me start with a word of prayer. Well, Lord God, we ask that you will save us from the deception of this world. Save us, O oh Lord, from the lies of Satan. And save us from ourselves. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a couple of uh, Sundays ago, uh, we went to an auction, a house auction, in our attempt to purchase a house. Uh, and now the number one tip that they give you when you're going to an auction is to make a plan. Make a plan before you get there. They said you're, you're making the biggest purchase of your life, therefore it's good to go in with a good plan and to go in prepared. Uh, it just happened that I love making plans. I like coming in prepared. So I did a lot of research. I did a lot of reading. Uh, what's the best approach when you're bidding? Uh, I made a plan of when to bid, what kind of bids to make. I even planned out what to wear during the auction. And I even told my wife that it says that it's best if you don't stand as a family, because if you stand as a family, you will look like you're desperate and you will lose the auction, you will lose the house. So I told my wife and my kids, look, to stand away from me as I bid. And more importantly, we agreed on what our maximum price would be. That's the most important part of the plan. Don't go over your price. But if you've been to an auction before, it's a very tense and very stressful experience. You're surrounded by about 30 to 50 people. Also, everyone wanting to buy this one house. And you have the auctioneer in front of you yelling prices after prices. And before you is also the house that you wanna, that you wanna get. It's a very emotional and stressful experience. So, Two weeks ago, during the auction, my adrenaline kicks in. I tried to look calm, but my heart is pounding inside. I was sweating. And when you're full of adrenaline, you don't think properly. You just react. And so all my plans were gone out the window. And I was just beating with a ridiculous price, like I was James Packer. 
And I went, I went way over the price limit that my wife and I agreed on. But the good thing is, we didn't get the house, <laughs> but someone else who probably went over the, their budget because it was way over the market value already got the house. And you know, in today's passage, we are looking at the time when Jesus laid out the plan very clearly of what's going to happen in the next few days. Jesus explained to the disciples or his students what's going to happen during the most stressful and the most scariest time of their lives. But like me, once adrenaline kicks in, all logic and wisdom starts to fail. And in the end, we can see that the disciples started to fail. But see, even from the very beginning in, chapter, in verses 10 to 12, Jesus was able to tell the disciples that, you're, that this is how you're going to find a place for us to eat. It's very interesting that how everything was all predestined by Jesus to happen. And so in a way, the disciples should have been very confident that everything that's about to happen is part of the plan. But when Jesus was arrested, all of them ran away. But see, the good thing is now we have a clear explanation for us of the meaning of Jesus' death here in the Lord's Supper story. That we are told what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, and how we can be part of that. In fact, this is why Jesus commanded the church to do this every time we meet, to eat the Lord's Supper. Because it is through the Lord's Supper where you can really understand what Christianity is all about. And see, even if like the disciples, we fail to execute the plan, this is teaching us how we can how we can face stressful and scary situations in our lives. And so today, I want to show you how important this plan is, why it is important, and how we can be part of it. And I want to present it in three headings, which are that the cross or the crucifixion redefines history, that the cross is truly necessary, and that the cross demands dependency. All right? So let's begin, let's begin. The cross redefines history. So firstly, I want to show you how, just very briefly, how weird and awkward and shocking this Passover dinner is. Because remember, the Passover meal is absolutely significant to the Jews, even up today. Uh, but it's very significant uh, to the Jews back then. In a way, the Passover really defines who they are as a nation. Um, and I was trying to think about like, what to compare it with, but it's, it's, it's really hard to find a comparison with the Passover meal. Because it's kind of like, I think, it's kind of like a mix of the significance of the American Independence Day, or maybe even our Anzac Day. So the idea of liberation and freedom, and mix it with something more spiritual ceremony or celebration like an Indian Diwali, where the, spirit, the spiritual understanding of, of good overcoming darkness and evil, and then mix that with New Year, where there's a fresh start. That's the Passover, like that's a Passover celebration. Because the story, if you're not aware, the story is back in the Old Testament, the Israelites were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. They were being oppressed. They were, uh, they were racially discriminated. They were in bondage. So God rescued them by sending the 10 plagues. So Pharaoh basically gave up or he let them go. And so God got them out. And so the Jews celebrate this rescue since then and up until now. And what will normally happen in a Passover celebration is that families, 
again, it's still happening today. Families will have a big meal. Um, if you can, we can have a, we have a photo here. And at the end of the meal, the head of the home, usually the patriarch of the family, will lead the family into some kind of ceremony where he will read the Torah, he will read the Psalms, and he will bless the food, and he will explain all the different components, the different food on the table, and how it symbolizes the different aspects of their deliverance and slavery in Egypt. So every year, the Jews prepare for this holiday. The entire nation is really, gets really busy with, with families coming together to celebrate. There's a sense of anticipation. It's like Christmas. There's joy. There's Thanksgiving. And there's a sense of national pride when they celebrate it. But look how different this Passover meal is with the disciples. Often we take it for granted. Firstly, notice the setting. The disciples are not having the Passover meal with their family. Jesus took them out of their family circle. In a way, he's, Jesus is redefining who they should be, who, who their family is now. He's like saying, don't spend Christmas with your family. This is your family now. And again, that's very confronting. Secondly, normally the, the head of the house would say something like, this bread is a symbol of God's provision in the, in the desert, or this bread, the, the reason why it's flat, it's unleavened, it's because it's a reminder for us when we were rushing out of Egypt. So every time they will have a speech about what's, what happened in the past. But notice Jesus is saying, this bread is the bread of my affliction, my body broken. Or this cup is being poured out for you, which is my blood. And I can't help to think that the disciples must be thinking, what the heck is he talking about that night? They must feel so confused. They're thinking, that's not how it goes, Jesus. Because all of a sudden, Jesus is creating his own meaning and significance for this event. He's changing the significance of the event. For, for a Jew that highly values the event, this will be quite offensive to create your own meaning. The Passover defines who they are, and yet here is Jesus completely redefining the significance of the event. And remember that one of the biggest Jewish heroes is Moses. He's the great prophet, the great leader that God spoke to Moses and Moses told the Israelites what God said on how they should celebrate the Passover and why. And since then, they haven't really changed anything. And now here is Jesus creating his own Passover. And by doing this, Jesus is claiming to be better than Moses. And see, look at the weight of verse 20. This cup is the new Covenant. He's saying, this is the new promise in my blood, which is being poured out for you. He's almost saying, forget the past, because here is what's new, a new promise. And this is why Jesus is not just redefining the Jewish identity of their time. The significance of this Passover, this new Passover, is cosmic. In, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says that this is the covenant for everyone, for all. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, this is happening for the forgiveness of all sins. See, Jesus during this new Passover is saying, this doesn't just affect the Jewish nation. It applies to everyone in the world. 
It's not just about political and social and economic liberation like what happened in Egypt. This is about spiritual freedom from your sins. In other words, the scope and the significance of this new Passover is way bigger and way better than what happened in Egypt. He's saying, forget what defines you in the past. From now on, this is what's going to define who you are and where you are going. Stop doing the old Passover. From now on, celebrate the new Passover. How weird and how confronting was that night? But what exactly is this new Passover that Jesus is talking about? Our second point. Why the cross? Why this crucifixion is necessary? So let's go back to what happened during that night in Exodus on this Passover night. In Exodus chapter 12, I think we have went through this uh, uh, early, early last year. In Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13, God said this when he was explaining what's about to happen. Again, this was his plan. On that night, I will pass through Egypt, <clears throat> and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Or in summary, God said, I will come down, I will pass through Egypt. Now when, you have to remember, when God comes down, in the Old Testament, it always means judgment. Genesis 11, the people were building a tower, right? Because they're trying to reach God. But God came down instead and he confuses their languages. And so God brought judgment. Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. God's, it says that God came down to have a look of, of, the, of the sinfulness of the people. And so when he realized how sinful they are, he brings fire and hail, judgment. See, when God comes down, there's always, there's always judgment because his holiness cannot tolerate people's sinfulness. So in a way, no one is safe when God comes down. And this is why if you go to the book of Revelation, what's happening is God coming down, right? Basically, he's destroying and killing everything that's been polluted by sin. And so the Passover night in the Old Testament is really but a small picture of what it's going to be like on Revelation when, when God comes down and brings judgment to the whole world. The Passover night is a small picture of, of what's about to happen. And, and see, in Egypt... That's why in Egypt, it was only the firstborn that was affected. But in Revelation, we see everyone dying. It's when the final justice takes place. And this is why during the judgment in Egypt, it's not about, it's not about the Israelites versus the, the Egyptians. It wasn't the Israelites were the good people and the Egyptians were bad. No, oh, no, no. The point of that, it's saying that no one is good enough. No one is good. God said that no one is going to be spared on that night. Everyone has to face the, God, the, the wrath of God that night. Just like everyone has to face his final judgment one day. Um, a few weeks ago, I was watching an, an interview in the news. Uh, a, a Christian was being interviewed. I won't say who, because um, it can be a bit political. But a Christian is being interviewed. And the question was... Do you think homosexuals will go to hell? 
a very confronting and hard uh, questions to, question to answer. And the guy basically said, you don't go to hell for being a homosexual, nor do you go to heaven for being a heterosexual. Hell is for anyone who falls short of the glory of God, which is everyone. He said, your sexual orientation doesn't save you. And this is why the Passover night in Egypt, it's not being an Israelite will not save you, right, from the wrath of God. Being a good and honest and obedient person doesn't exclude you because no one is good enough and honest enough and obedient enough. And the only way for the Israelites to survive is that if they kill a lamb and eat it that night and put the blood on their doorpost, because when the holiness and justice of God passes through, their only hope is that blood on their door. Their hope is that the lamb that has died will pay for their sins. The lamb is their savior. Therefore, God says, if my justice comes down that night, it doesn't matter what race you belong to. It doesn't matter whether you've tried hard enough or you're, you think you're good enough. Everybody is subject to my justice. Everybody is in danger. Nobody will be able to survive regardless of what they look like, how they live, because justice is going to come down on everything. Which means for us today, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or you grew up in prison, the only way you'll be safe today is the same reason, the same reasoning the Israelites have back then. Your only hope is to be covered by the blood of the lamb. God said on this night, you're, there's either a dead son or a dead lamb in your house. It was one or the other. God said, kill a perfect lamb and smudge the blood on your door. Because if I see the blood, it means that justice has been paid on this house. And I will pass over your house. Either a dead son or a dead lamb. Either you believe and obey that or you take your chance. See, no one is safe unless you take shelter on the blood. And see, the Passover again in the Old Testament is nothing but a hint to the Passover in the New Testament. Because did you realize that when Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal, there was something missing? There was the bread, there was the wine. What's missing in this meal? The lamb. How can you have a Passover meal without the lamb? That's the main course. It's like going to KFC and there's no chicken left. Why wasn't there a lamb? Well, and I'm not sure whether they ate a lamb or not, but there was no mention of the lamb in the gospel. But one theologian says that there was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. He's saying that I am the sacrificial lamb that's not just going to save you from the political slavery. I'm saving you from the bigger problem. I'm saving you from the judgment of God. I'm saving you from your sins. That's the reason why when John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ for the first time, he said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. He's in awe. Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb 
to the slaughter. When Jesus Christ says in verses 19 to 20, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for you, he's, he's identifying, he's saying, I am the suffering servant. I am the one who, who Isaiah was speaking about. I am the Lamb of God to which all other lambs has been pointing to that taketh away the sin of the world. And this is the meaning of Jesus' death. That he lived the life that we cannot live and he died the death that we should have died. And no one is safe in the very presence of God. That the only way to survive is if when someone else pays the price for your sake. God's firstborn son, his firstborn son became the sacrificial lamb for us. That on this Passover, the dead son is the lamb. That Jesus Christ got what we deserve. That our sins fell upon him. Our guilt fell upon him. Our brokenness fell upon him. He, then he took it on himself so that we can be freed. We can be forgiven. That we are saved from the judgment on the cross. Because Jesus Christ took it on our behalf. Now how do you receive this salvation? Her third point. The cross, at the same time, demands dependency. You know, I find it really funny uh, that a lot of kids today, they don't know where, where their food comes from. A lot of kids are, are com in complete denial of what sacrifices needs to be made for us to eat. That chicken nuggets is more enjoyable if you didn't know that it literally comes from the body of a dead chicken, Right? Or a good steak or a good lamb, as good as it is, it's hard to stomach knowing that a young, helpless animal has been taken away from their parents for our meat consumption. See, if I say it like that, it doesn't sound very appetizing. But I think this is why the Passover meal is such a good reminder of what exactly is the cost of our salvation. See, the Israelites, they were eating the very thing that saved them. Have you noticed that? As, a, as they were enjoying their food that night, they must be thinking that without this lamb on the table that they're, that they're feeding on, that they have no hope. For their salvation comes from the, from the blood of this lamb. And this is why John, uh, Jesus said in John 6 that if you want to receive eternal life, then you need to eat my flesh. He's alluding to the sacrificial lamb. He's saying to receive salvation like in Exodus, you need to receive me like you have received the lamb. Which means that you cannot have, you cannot have any other hope aside from Jesus Christ. See, right after Jesus told the disciples what's about to happen, when he was sharing about the plan that, 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 um, that one of them will betray him, uh, in verse 24, the disciples started fighting, well, who's the best student here? They're fighting, well, who, who's going to be more faithful? Who's got a stronger faith? Who's going to be more obedient? But then in verse 33, the leader of the group, Peter, said, no, no, not me. I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. But Jesus said, no, 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 you will fail. In fact, three times you're going to deny me. But I've prayed for you. You know what this is telling us? It's saying that even our faith even the faith that we have on Jesus is a gift. That even your, your perseverance is a gift from God. 
that you can't, that you can't even remain faithful without his help unless God is faith, faithful to you. Your salvation doesn't depend on your commitment to God, but by his commitment to you. Your salvation does not depend on the, on the quality of your faith or the quality of your obedience or the quality of your commitment to him. It depends completely on his commitment to you. Do you see that? That's why in verse 31, Jesus doesn't tell Peter, uh, Peter, if in case you turn back, strengthen your brothers. No, no, no. Jesus said, when you turn back, that even Peter's repentance was part of the plan. It means that God will remain faithful even when you are faithless. Do you believe that? Well, believe it. Because when you're in your hospital bed wondering why God is allowing this, or when, you're, when your family is, is crumbling and breaking apart and not knowing why God is not answering your prayers, or when you're in, a, in an auction and getting beaten by someone else and can't find a house to live in, when your faith is starting to weaken because of your situation, God says, I have a plan and I am faithful in keeping that plan. See, the whole point of the Lord's Supper is to work that truth into our hearts in order to change us. The Lord's Supper is, is not a reminder of how strong our faith is, but it's a reminder of his faithfulness to us. Look at verse 16, when Jesus said, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You know what that is? That's, that's an ancient promise. In Acts 23, there's a group of people who was really, they were really angry at the Apostle Paul. And they made the same promise. They said that we're not going to eat until we kill him. Because when you say that I won't eat or drink until I accomplish this, you're saying that I will do whatever it takes to, so that I see it, that it gets done. Even if it costs my life. That Jesus said, I will see to it that your salvation gets done, even if it costs my life. That your salvation does not depend on you, it depends on him and him alone. All you have to do is take and eat. All you have to do is take shelter on, under the blood of the lamb. Because maybe a lot of you are thinking, if only I can prove to God how committed I am, then, I, then God will bless me. Maybe I need to read my Bible more. I need to go to church more. I need to serve more. Then God will bless me. Then I will be saved. Oh, no. See, when things go wrong in your life, you say, well, maybe I'm not committed enough. That's why uh, this is all happening to me. And you start to beat yourself thinking that, thinking that you're not good enough. Then you don't really understand what the gospel is. You need to learn how to completely depend on him. You need to realize that there is nothing, there's nothing in your hands that you can bring to him. But simply to the cross, you must cling. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we thank you for your sacrifice, for giving up your one and only son to bring judgment on your own son. And Lord Jesus, we cannot comprehend the, the enormity, the, the weight of our sin upon your shoulders and you paying the price for that. And Lord, when, when we go to church, when we take communion, when we commune with one another, when we fellowship with one another, help us to be reminded. Help us to remind one another 
of your wonderful goodness and grace. Help us to remind one another of your deep love for us, especially when our faith starts to be shaken by the current situation that we're in. Help us, O oh Lord, to remember that you are always faithful, even when we are faithless. This we pray in his name. Amen.